You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Welcome, listeners, to this recent podcast, which we have titled, How Did a Medievalist Become President and CEO of the Met? And I want to welcome Daniel Weiss, who is here with me, at least remotely, today. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And maybe you could begin by briefly telling people what your current position is and since when. Sure. So I've been at the Metropolitan since 2015. I was first hired to be president and chief operating officer, where I would work in partnership with the director, who at the time was Tom Campbell. And after about a year and a half, I was promoted to be president and chief executive officer, and Tom Campbell left and we hired a new director, Max Holine. So I work in partnership with Max, the director, uh, but I serve as both president and chief executive officer. So I have ultimate responsibility for the institution But really, the job is a partnership, and it's a little bit like a university, for those of us who know about universities. Between the president and the provost, responsibilities are allocated much like that. Okay, yeah, thank you. Now, of course, we know each other from a different context. I know you as a medievalist since, uh, do I have this right, since 1980? Yes, we've known each other a long time, Sandra. That's, uh, that's very true. And so I'd like to talk about you as a medievalist first a little, switching back to your start at Hopkins. I think the Wikipedia page on you might be wrong because they have you at Hopkins only in 1989 after a stint in the business world. Whereas I believe you came, I mean, I wasn't there in 89, so you must have come, what year? I came in 81, and I spent a year there, 81, 82, with you, and I got a master's degree at the time. And then I left. I decided at that time I didn't think I wanted an academic career. So I left, and I went and got an MBA, and then I went to work for several years in the business world as a management consultant during which time I realized I did actually want to be an academic and have a career in university life and in the art world. So I left the business world in 1989 and came back to Hopkins to work with Herb Kessler, your teacher and mine, and I got a PhD and then ended up getting hired right into the department where I stayed. Right. So that's what that seven-year period was where I left before I came back again. And why a medievalist? Like, what were your thoughts and ambitions in 1981 when you started your academic career at Hopkins? Yeah, I I was first exposed to art history as an undergraduate at George Washington University. I took classes with Jeffrey Anderson, who is a Byzantinist. And because I found him to be an extraordinarily compelling and interesting teacher and scholar, I, I was just brought into his world. And... I was interested in art history generally, and I took classes across 
the spectrum of courses that were offered. But it was his work, the power of his intellect, his scholarly interests that brought me into the medieval world, and I took various courses with him and settled on the idea of pursuing graduate work in medieval because I thought the intellectual and artistic questions associated with medieval were really in some ways quite distinctive as I saw them across the range of fields I might study. And then I met Herb Kessler, and I was still at GW at the time. And he was an extraordinarily helpful and thoughtful mentor and encouraged me to apply for graduate school at Hopkins to work with him in medieval. And so I did that and found that I had made just the right choice in terms of my own intellectual interests. And, of course, you know well all about medieval, but that's what brought me into it in the first place. Okay, and then to the other side, then why not medieval? I mean, of this interlude from... 19 whatever it is 83 maybe to 1989 what took you out of medieval and into the business world i mean i too have sort of two hats as you know i'm an academic but i'm a dealer and so i'm always interested in people's trajectories and yours is is an unusual one well as i reflect back on my career now that it's it's uh, mostly behind me i suppose and I think about the decisions that I've made, I have had always, like you, a really lively interest both in, in scholarship in the world of ideas and research and in the world of business and management. I've always been at that. And after my time at Hopkins getting the MA, I thought maybe this is not a world that I want to do. It, maybe it's, it just it felt to me at the time like scholarship and an academic career probably wasn't right for me. It's also probably true at the time I felt a little overwhelmed that maybe this is not something I'm capable of doing. It's just it all happened fairly quickly right out of college. So I thought I would do something. When I left Hopkins the first time, it was with the idea that I would get an MBA and maybe pursue a career in museums. That was what I had in my mind at the time. One thing led to another while I was in business school, and I was learning a lot about nonprofit organizations. I was at Yale, and I took courses with the director of the Yale University Art Gallery, learning about museums at that time. Hmm. But I, in the end, get, got hired at a management consulting firm thinking this is the moment for me to dive in a deep way into high-level business and management work to see what that's like, what I could learn, and whether it's right for me. And I did that for four years, during which time it was clear to me that I learned an enormous amount. That period in my life was extraordinarily valuable. But it wasn't who I am, and I found myself increasingly drawn back to thinking about a career in academics. And throughout that time, I stayed in very close touch with Herb Kessler, my teacher. And he was, he was very helpful in encouraging me to do what felt right for me. And so at, at a certain point, I realized I wanted to commit myself fully to an academic career and to doing the very best I can as an art historian. And I didn't know what that was. Of course, none of us do when we start these difficult career paths. But I threw myself into it, and with his support and, and encouragement, I went back to Hopkins. I was more ready, I think, the second time to do the kind of deep work that graduate students and scholars do. And it was the, one of the most rewarding and interesting periods of my life. I was ready for it. I was incredibly stimulated by what I was studying. It went very quickly, and it went well. So in some ways, it was a gift to leave, because if I had stayed, I probably would not have been the art historian I was mm-hmm. by coming back time. Yeah, how interesting. Now, you've published quite a lot on medieval. I think the first book, Art and Crusade, must have been your dissertation revised. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's basically right. And then, you know, the Book of Kings, um, that collaborative project on the Morgan Manuscript, um, France and the Holy Land. It's rather a significant list of publications in medieval. I wonder if you have a favorite of those that you worked on. I mean, they're all great projects, but I'm interested in looking back what you think. Well, first of all, let me just say that, that any career like mine is always characterized by certainly hard work, but also just good fortune. And I was very lucky that I had the relationships that I did early on, people who took an interest in me. You, her, people who who could help me learn and develop as a scholar. And then I got hired into the department at Hopkins. And as you know well, the expectation there is that everybody's a productive scholar at a high level. So I felt right away both the, the opportunity, but also the requirement to be a scholar right away and to do throw myself into that. So I got into the pattern of publishing a fair amount quickly. And, you know, that was just the world we were in. Everybody was doing that. So I'm grateful for having that that opportunity. But of the things that I did as a medievalist, I think the project that I found most rewarding was probably the first one, the the book Art and Crusade in the Age of San Luis. About a third of it comes from my dissertation. But as my thinking evolved, I began to see a very large pattern of cultural interaction between the medieval West and primarily in France and Paris under the Capetian ruler Louis IX, and what was happening in the East in the age of the Crusades. And there was enormous cultural exchange back and forth in ways that at that time I don't think was widely recognized. And so I think the major contribution of that book is, I think I was the first to argue that the Saint-Chapelle, which is a quintessentially beautiful high Gothic structure with stained glass and Western medieval artistic program that is in many ways quite typical of what one finds in France, was actually deeply imbued with crusader themes and is very, very political and cross-cultural in in the ways it tells its stories. And so I, in fact, discovered the Saint-Chapelle is in many ways an evocation of the Temple of Solomon, including it was built on the same dimensions as the Temple of Mm. Solomon as described in the Bible. So that, to me, felt like a really natural, strong outgrowth of my dissertation work, and I'm very proud of that that publication. That's great, yeah. I'll come back to your interest in continuing to publish in a second, but I wanted to move from that to your trajectory in university administration. Because in a way that, I mean, not every academic, publishing academic, you know, full associate, full professor, goes the admin route. And sometimes um, it's kind of seen by other professors as a cop-out. Like, you know, you don't really want to publish and teach anymore, so you're going to go into administration. I don't know if you've ever had that reaction from (laughs) colleagues, but it's sort of like, you know, going from an academic to, it's not quite the same thing, but going from an academic to a dealer, you've, in that case, gone over to the dark side. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I've heard that too, I know. Um, but I think for me, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. So, you know, our, our listeners well, may not know that you went, you became a dean at, at Hopkins, and then you went into other university administrations. Maybe you could talk a little about that trajectory. Sure. So I think from the onset, as I was saying earlier, I, my interests were both in the world of scholarship and, and university life, and also in administration and leadership. And my whole career has been going back and forth between those worlds. 
when I was at Hopkins and I was a faculty member, I would say as I reflect back on those years, those were the happiest years of my professional life. Mm -hmm. I love teaching and scholarship. Mm -hmm. There is no life that is more rewarding or enjoyable than spending all day, every day, thinking about the things that interest you the most, surrounded by people who are interested in those things as well having an opportunity to travel around the world and do research among colleagues. It's just, it was a golden period in my life. But I also recognized that just based on my own intellectual interests and my own personality, I was also interested in these other questions. And I learned early on that for universities to do well, they have to be led by people who, who actually are committed to the idea that leadership matters. Mm-hmm. And I think it's wrong to say, as many university leaders or many professors would say, that it's the dark side, like somebody has to turn on the lights and make sure the bills are paid, so somebody has to be the dean. In fact, it's hard work, and if it's done well, everybody else gets to do the job the way they want to do it. Mm-hmm. And if it's done badly, then there are budget crises and people are laid off and there aren't resources and there's no students and there's not other resources in place to allow people to thrive. And I took seriously early on the idea that both are professions worthy of excellence, both being a scholar and being an administrator. So I was very proud of the fact that while I was a faculty member at Hopkins, I taught well, I won teaching awards, I got promoted very quickly through the ranks at Hopkins as a scholar because of the books I wrote, and I had proven myself as an academic on the merits that Hopkins sets for faculty members. But I was also interested in leadership and wanting to make Mm -hmm. sure that the environment was a strong one. So when I became dean, I think most people understood that I wasn't copying out because they had just promoted me and they, you know, these are my colleagues, they knew me since I was a graduate student. So I had credibility with them as a leader. And I found that very rewarding to work with my colleagues in that setting. How can we make for a better school of arts and sciences? What can we do to bring in stronger students? How can we provide better resources for research? And how can we collaborate across the university? You do those things well, people notice, and the place gets better. And so I found both rewarding, but all the time that I was a dean, I also continued to teach. And I did some Mm -hmm. level of research, although it's hard to stay at the same level. And throughout my career, that was 20 years ago, I have always done those things. I've continued to teach and I've continued to write. And I found that balance for me to be the right one. It's amazing that you were able to balance that, though. I mean, I I was chair for seven years, as you probably know, at Northwestern. And and I found it, you know, really absorbing. I mean, I liked being an administrator, but I missed the extent to which I could do research. And I have other students, uh, former graduate students, who have admin jobs now and are just like, you know, chomping at the bit to get back to their scholarship. I mean, it's hard. Yeah, right. I think that that for when you have schedules like that, I was a college president for 10 years after I left Johns Hopkins, and then I've been here for six years at the Met. What I've learned from my experience is you have actually a fair amount of freedom to do the things that you think are most important for you to be an effective leader, but also a, a person who is sustained by your own activities. And I recognize that some level of scholarship and writing is really important to me. So when people ask me, how do you do that? You know, I give a kind of quick answer. I don't golf. I get up on Saturday morning and I don't go to the golf course. I go to my desk and I work for four or five hours like I would if I was playing golf. And then I spend the rest of the afternoon with my family. And I feel fulfilled doing that. During the week, I don't have time to write. But during the week, and I'm completely absorbed in my job. But I find time to write where I have the opportunities to do that on weekends. I take some vacation time here and there. 
And I have to organize my time really carefully because it matters to me. And, and it's, it actually makes me a better leader to be doing that kind of scholarship at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't feel burned out because I'm, I'm sustained in the intellectual work I'm doing as a writer and a scholar. Well, that's, it's great that you've been able to, you know, have the discipline to sit down at a desk every Saturday, especially after what I'm sure is a very, very intense job. Let's talk just a bit about your job. I mean, you know, I have a couple of questions about it. Like, was it a surprise, the Met job? Is it your dream job? You're the president and CEO of the most important museum in America, for sure, and one of the most important museums worldwide. I mean, it's really a high-profile, big, big job. I don't know, I asked three questions at once, but maybe you could talk a little about it. Sure. Well, first of all, it is a wonderful job, and it is my dream job. And as I said earlier, I think um, anyone who has had a career like I have had, it, it really, the defining characteristic is good fortune. you got to be in the right place at the right time. There are a lot of people. I think I'm good at my job. I'm very proud of the work we've done at the Met. But I'm under no illusions about the fact that there are other people who could do this job, too. And there are plenty of people who, who would rise to the occasion of filling this role effectively. I just had the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time with the right experience. So I, I take that as a, really an, an act of good fortune, and I'm, I have a lot of gratitude for that. But the, the job itself, interestingly, as I started my career, as I was saying earlier, I thought about a career in museums when I went to business school. And in fact, while I was getting my MBA, I did an independent study project on art museum leadership. And I went around the country and met with museum leaders including the president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This was 40 years ago or something, 35 years ago. Who was it then? Uh, Bill McComber. I see. Yeah, Bill uh-huh. he, he had been a diplomat, and he had then come to the Met to be the president. He worked in partnership with Philippe de Montebello. And it never would have occurred to me at the time I met with him that someday I would be in that job. But I thought that that's a career path that might be very well suited to me because of my interest both in art and, and in leadership. But I never would have imagined it would actually happen. And then when I embarked on the career that I ended up having as a university professor and then a college president, I thought I had left my museum days behind me. It never occurred to me that I would come here. And then one day out of the blue, I was the president of Haverford College. I got a call from the museum asking if I was interested in considering this role. And they too acknowledged that my background was in some ways ideally suited to this job. So even though my career had been a little bit eccentric in terms of the things I had done, it was the perfect preparation to be the president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which runs like a university. It's as big and complicated as a small university, and it is entirely devoted to art and art history, a field in which I am a scholar. So I felt like I all the preparation over decades had been suited to this. But I still had to get the call. It was all good fortune. Well, I have a client who says, you know, people make their luck, that it's luck isn't something that only falls out of the sky. So don't sell yourself too short here, I'm sure. No, it's both. You have to show up and you have to be prepared. And I've spent my entire career working hard in various jobs and being successful at it. So I'm under no illusions about that. I I know that, that the effort I put into my work has made a difference. But in the end, any particular job anyone has is really more a product of circumstance and serendipity than it is of destiny. So I ended up at the Met at the right time, and the job has been very challenging. 
but I think I've, I've done it well, and I'm well prepared for this job. And I, I came into it grateful for the opportunity and impressed by the place, but not at all intimidated by the challenge. I understood from the other things I had done what's required to do the job effectively here. When I um, told you what I wanted to title this, I think you said to me, well, there's a tradition of medievalists being in high administration at the Met. Um, uh, can you tell me a little about that? Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing because those of us who are medievalists, it's not obvious or intuitive that people who want to study medieval art end up being in administrative roles in universities and museums. But at the Met, Jim Rorimer, who was the director in the 1960s, I think, he was all curator of medieval art and rose through the ranks at the Met to become the director. Mm -hmm. And then he was succeeded by the very famous and well-remembered Tom Hoven, who was a very colorful character and a transformational, I guess you'd call him a disruptor in today's <laughs> language, in the museum world. And he was also a medievalist. He was trained by Kurt Weizmann at Princeton, same as my teacher and yours, Herb Kessler, and many others. And then he was a curator. Yeah, I, yeah I, didn't, I didn't know that. I had forgotten, I guess, that Tom Hoving was a medievalist. Um, but yes, uh, and I certainly didn't know he, or couldn't remember, he was a Weizmann student. Yeah, he's an unusual uh, Weizmann protege, but he, he, I think he kind of glided into art history at Princeton as a kind of typical undergraduate, bright enough, interested in lots of things, not particularly serious about ideas or scholarship. And there was something about Weizmann who was in many ways the opposite of Tom Hoving, a serious, focused, Germanic scholar of, of art history. Mm -hmm. Anton is mostly. As you know, Hoving was somehow taken by the guy, and that story itself is sort of interesting. And he became a devoted protege of Weizmann, hmm. and Weizmann was then involved at the Met after that, and he was, uh, he was involved in various things at the Met, including doing major exhibitions in the 1970s. Yes, yeah, so there's these medievalists before me, they were both directors, and I am not the director here, so I don't make the artistic decisions as they did but I am involved in much of the same work that they were, and I am the leader of the band. Right. And I'm a medievalist. So I was going to ask you, you just led me into another question I had. Um, as you said, you're not the director, you're the president, so you don't make the artistic decisions, but you are a medievalist, and I wonder how that affects um, artistic decisions or your involvement with the medieval department. I mean, you know, you and Griff are even classmates, aren't you? Or are you not at the same time he as each other? He was a student of mine. Oh, I there. <laughs> But I guess, you know, you're really in the leadership financial role, and it's probably, relatively speaking, hands-off in terms of, you know, are we going to acquire this, you know, multi-trillion dollar fabulous object or whatever? <laughs> well, it's a lot, as I said earlier, it's a lot like a university setting. So I, as the president, I, I oversee everything. But the, the director is really the person involved in all of the decisions around program content collection and I work in support of that but it's it, just like at a university the president of the University of Chicago is not making decisions about the curriculum in the art history department or in terms of the students that are being admitted and so I think for it to work well and it does work well here at the Met Max Holine and I are really strong partners he has expertise and responsibility for things that I don't do and I have responsibility for things that he doesn't do, but we overlap all day long. 
And so he, he makes decisions about what the medieval department is going to be collecting and what their program is. And I'm very supportive of that. And occasionally I weigh in on things that require my expertise. But I don't set that direction. And frankly, I'm not really a medievalist in the same way I once was. I don't keep up with the scholarship as, as I might, and therefore I feel more like a lapsed medievalist. But, I'm an, but I have credibility among the curators and the museum because I am a, a person with scholarly background. So they know that I understand and appreciate what they do. I don't believe the CEO of the Met could ever be someone who doesn't have those qualifications. It's, it's just too important to the mission. But I don't have to make the decisions around program or collection. You mean who doesn't have some qualifications as an art historian? So you don't think someone who, you know, studied like astrophysics and then went to business school and was a very skilled businessman could become an effective CEO and president? Is that what you're saying? I don't think, yes, I don't think at the Met, I can't speak for every museum, but the Met's culture is a lot like a very serious, highly accomplished research university. We have 17 curatorial departments. Each one of them looks like the art history department at Dartmouth College. That is to say, it's, it's a reasonable size. It's filled with people with scholarly records. We have the largest, I think we have the largest, as it were, faculty of art historians in the world hmm. of any institution. Mm-hmm. We have the largest conservation resources of any one institution. And all of these people are the highest functioning in their field. The leader of this institution has to understand and appreciate at a deep level mm-hmm. what our mission really is. And it's it's about discovery, scholarship, education, mm-hmm. engaging people with art. And you got to have somebody who gets that. So in my own view, I don't think the Met can be led by someone who doesn't have a deep, demonstrable record of appreciation for that. Hmm. But we'll see. You can ask me that question in 30 years, and we'll see what happens. I'm trying to think of um, other museums. Um, This is a little off the topic, but like your role at other museums, what would be like the Louvre or maybe the British Museum is probably different because it's state-run or the Getty. Is it typical? Those those places are all led by art historians. The the Getty is led, has a president who is the CEO, Jim Cuno. Of course. And, and he works in partnership with the director. But Jim is an art historian. He has a PhD. Right. And he was a museum director. So he has what I'm talking about. And I can't say for absolute sure that no institution would do well with a different model. But this place, the Met, it, it has such a deep commitment to scholarship and to the fundamental work one does with objects in engaging his, in historical inquiry and scientific investigation around conservation that it's, uh, it feels a little bit more like Princeton to me than Disneyland. Right. No, no, I, I, I take the comparison with the universities. I think it's interesting. And, you know, a president of a university or a provost or a dean might have 17 or 20, I don't know how many departments um, under him or her. Right. Not dissimilar to the 17 departments you have, each with a curator slash chair and then, you know, assistant and associate curators. So, yeah, no, right. I think it's... There's a- hundreds of them. We have a publications department here that looks just like a university press. Right. We publish 30 to 35 books a year. We have one of the largest art history libraries, art libraries in the world. So you put it all together, and it starts to look again like a small university. Only all of it is art. <laughs> right, a- right. 
that's why it's a dream job for me. Right, and that's why it's not such a switch from being president of a university. It doesn't seem like, you know, a, a detour or a, um, a very different thing. Just a better no, thing. No, it's much more... It's much more similar than, than one might think, although I was, I was actually quite intrigued when I arrived by the ways in which it was different. So I continued to learn and expand in my own professional skills and learning because the place, it, it isn't exactly the same as the university, but there's a lot of commonality. Right. You know, Danny, I'd like to talk, I'm sorry to keep calling you Danny. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay. this, um, this uh, reveals how long we've known each other, the Sandy Danny that probably no one, no one except someone from 40 years ago calls you Danny. It's true, but it's fine. We go way back. Um, we do. And, you know, I can see you. This is a detour, too. I can see you across the table from me at a seminar at Hopkins. But what seminar did you take from me? Do you remember? Yeah, it was a seminar on methods. Is, and you were teaching. It was for entry level. Oh, yeah, I remember the methods. Right. And I worked on Bernard Van Orley and the diptych at the National Gallery in Washington, but you were really teaching us methods. It was I a great see. class. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I, could, I just wasn't sure if it was a manuscript class or what. But anyway, yeah. um, I want to return to the question of your writing because I know you do still write. You've talked about your Saturday mornings at the research table instead of on the golf course, and you have a book that is in press that is quite different, I think, your medieval books. Can, why did you talk about your more recent interests in publication and what they are and what's forthcoming? Sure. My scholarly interests have evolved over the years. I published several books and articles in the medieval field when that's what I was doing. And then as a college president, I did a book on higher education. I was interested very much in the questions associated with liberal arts colleges and what makes them thrive. And then more recently, I got very interested in a story, it's a complete divergence for me intellectually, the story of a young man who went to Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. He was also a poet. And his story is really quite wrenching and very sad. And the more I learned about his story, the more I was taken to want to tell that story and learn more about him. That book was published about a year and a half ago. It's called In That Time, Michael O'Donnell and the Tragic Era of Vietnam. And, and how, did you, how did you come across, I mean, you know, maybe this is a spoiler for those who are going to read the book, but how did you come across this, no. um, this pilot and these poems? I was looking at, uh, several years ago, I was looking at a coffee table book by Harold Evans called The American Century, and many of you may know it. It was really a book about the 20th century art and politics and culture. And in that book, there was a very small section on the Vietnam War, within which there was a photograph of this nice-looking young man with a poem below it. And I read the poem, and I was really taken by how, how powerful the poem was. Basically, the poem was saying, and in that time when men decided to feel safe to call this war insane, don't forget hmm. those gentle heroes you left behind. Hmm. And it was written by this this young man, Michael O'Donnell, and right after he wrote it, his helicopter was shot down in Vietnam. Mm. And at the time I read Harold Evans' book, he was still listed as missing in action 30 years later. Wow. So I wanted to understand more about his own story and what prompted him to write that very powerful poem, which I turned out was one of the most well-known and beloved poems of the Vietnam War. But O'Donnell's story had not been told since his remains were found in Vietnam and at the time I started on this project, he had just been buried at Arlington Cemetery mm. about two weeks after 9-11. 
So there was this very interesting historical hmm. connection. And what I wanted to do in the book was tell the story of the Vietnam War in the 1960s through the experiences of one young man who found himself in the wrong place at the wrong hmm. time, mm -hmm. but who was heroic and artistic in his own expression of his experience. So that book was published about a year and a half ago. And that's and one poem among many, or you said he was... Yes, a... he wrote several dozen. When he got hmm. to Vietnam, he had been a songwriter, a good one. Hmm. He made an album. He was on his way to being a successful folk musician hmm. with a partner. And they were doing well. And then the war intervened. So as I wrote this book, I tracked down his musical partner, who helped me a great deal, and he became one of my closest friends. It was one of the most remarkable experiences of my life to write this book, because I became very closely associated with Michael O'Donnell's world. His very best friend, Marcus Sullivan, is now one of my very best friends. Mm -hmm. And O'Donnell's sister and his fiance are all people in my world now that I, that I know and cherish. And so it's, it opened up a world to me that it all started with reading a poem in a book. It was uh, quite an odyssey. Hmm, interesting. So I'm very pleased with this book. It tells the story of Vietnam and this young man, but it was just something I wanted to explore. And, and now I'm writing a book about museums, which is a very different thing, but it's based on the world I inhabit now. So and there's a connection between my writing and my work. And what about museums? The book is called Why the Museum Matters. It's hmm. part of a series that Yale's publishing on called Why X Matters. Hmm. And they ask people to write about subjects that are of interest. Hmm. So I'm exploring both the history of the museum idea that dates back to antiquity, mm -hmm. and what is it about material culture and the preservation and curation of objects that gives so much meaning and importance to human life in every civilization. So mm -hmm. I'm exploring that, and now looking, the most, I think, important part of the book is exploring what museums mean today. We have become a place where ideas are debated in, in very important ways. What should museums be? Are they really a citadel of culture, or are they a forum for debate and discussion, or both? What kind of spaces are museums, and what do they represent in our society? Why are they so important to people? So I'm exploring these ideas that get to the centrality of museums in societies, including their engines of economic progress in cities. Mm -hmm. Like, there's that, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of everything, but it's, uh, it relates very closely to what I do during the day, so it's a little bit easier to write and it, yeah. in the world I'm in. And it must, I mean, there, you must also have to deal with the issue of, you know, are museums for the elite? How can they be more populist, et cetera? Very much so. Who do they serve? Who owns them? Who should run them? Mm -hmm. Who do they belong to? What should we collect? Mm -hmm. These are questions we debate now, as you know, very actively. I'd like to reflect on those questions in a way that will help me to learn more about the issues, but also to try a framework for debate and discussion. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes as a society we lose our way on those questions. And you mentioned you have a book on the equivalent of this book on museums for university presidents or university administration or colleges. What is that book that you wrote while you were in Haverford? That book was a collection of essays I did with the president of Swarthmore College, Rebecca Chop, called hmm. Remaking College. And really, it, the book was about exploring what liberal arts colleges do, how are they important, are they an enduring idea, how should they be funded. At the center of that book is the question, what is the value and importance of a liberal education, which is what interested me the most. Because we live in a society, as you know, where people are very instrumental in their goals for learning. If I'm going to spend that much money to go to college, I need a degree I can use. I should probably study engineering or business or something. And actually, the evidence is quite clear that a liberal education gives people a springboard to a 
more interesting life and a very rewarding career, but you have to take the long view. So the book really makes the argument as to why those kinds of, of learning goals are both humanly more valuable to people over time and also instrumentally useful. You will get a good job if you can write the English language effectively, mm-hmm. you can communicate well and analyze the problem. Mm-hmm. So that's what that book was about. Of course, um, universities and museums and their mission and their future are both a little bit up for grabs. I'm sure we're all sick of the pandemic, and you're probably sick of talking about it in relationship to the museum, but there are certain aspects that are very unclear, I would think, and I'd maybe in conclusion be interested in your opinion for universities moving forward since Zoom and digital contact has become the norm and museums moving forward. I mean, it has to be a challenge if a museum runs 50% or 30% um, on admissions when they're closed. So I wonder if you could talk a few minutes about this um, as we conclude. Sure. I think this is a time of great transformation in our society. I think there's no question we will never look the same after we come out of this pandemic. Universities and museums will all be informed in fundamental ways to do things differently using virtual capabilities we didn't have before. That's clear. And we're all going to do that. But I think what we're learning at universities and in museums is how important human interaction is, how important it is to connect directly with works of art. We have great digital images. It's not the same as as being right right. in front of an object. And I think the challenge for universities is we've got to figure out how to allow for genuine liberal learning to thrive. And that means people can disagree in a classroom on an issue. I'm very worried about the increased restriction on open debate and the the ways in which people are so careful to cultivate, curate their own point of view. And they don't want to be challenged in ways that challenges their point of view. Hmm. Because I think the greatest learning takes place at the nexus of discomfort. People have to be exposed to ideas that challenge them. And universities need to figure that out. And being too politically correct is not the answer. They have to find a way that embraces learning and disagreement and respectful debate. Mm-hmm. And museums, too. We have to, uh, we have, to have exhibitions and programs that in- inspire and delight people, but also challenge them. Mm-hmm. Our own democracy, our own society depends on an informed citizenry. That's a fundamental obligation that we have to, without sounding you know, pedantic, it's really important that people be exposed to ways they can grow personally and intellectually, and universities need to figure that out. But I don't think the human side of it is going to fade. I think what people learned this past year is they really miss each other, and we want to find a way to be back together again, and maybe we'll do it more effectively in the future than we did in the past. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, that's very interesting. I think the whole art world um, has probably changed significantly in good ways and bad ways, too. Uh, I, agree. I think we've learned that when we can sit at a Zoom meeting with in a conference um, or roundtable with people all around the world for free or just the amount of a Zoom subscription, it's incredible. And, you know, before we'd have to pay airfare and honoraria, et cetera, to do that. So that's one of the really good sides. Even a podcast. I just read yesterday that in 2005, 
podcast was the new word of the year. And oh, is that right? Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, and it was from iPod and broadcast or something. And uh, most people didn't know what a podcast was in 2005. And here we are in a wow. podcast. Um, no, it's true. The, the, uh, the platform is amazing. It can reach the whole world. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm really, really grateful to you for taking time out of what I know must be a very busy schedule to talk to me. And I'm sure um, many, many, many people will look forward to listening to this and to hear what you have to say. You've had well, such an interesting career and trajectory, and I'm delighted that we've known each other so long and we can still be in contact and have an exchange. Well, me too. It's always great to talk. I cherish that history. And thank you so much for the opportunity to do this with you. Okay, Dan. Well, thank you again, and have a great day, okay? Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. This has been a Laison Lumineer podcast. Please check us out on the web at laysonlumineer.com and on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We continue to update our content on a regular basis. We would like to wish you all a happy and healthy 2021.